From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets. Hi, and welcome to another John Hannah Meets. I'll never forget the summer of 1999 when I went to London to meet one of my long-term screen idols, Charlton Heston. We had a bit of lunch and he left the room for a while and I said to his wife Lydia, how long is fine and how long is too long? She said, well, how long would you like? And I said, really needing an hour, but I said, oh, about 45 minutes. So Charlton came back and she said, oh, Chuck, John would like uh, a 45 minute interview if that's possible. He said, 45 minutes? Never done one that long in my life. He said, let's wait and see. So they found a small room for us and in we went. And my luck was in because fully an hour later, I'd thanked him for the interview. So let's go back to that very hot summer of 1999. Another Hannum Archive. Charlton, welcome to John Hannum Meets. Nice to be with you. Nice to share your audience. And I have to call you Chuck, I understand. Is that correct? If that suits you. (laughs) (laughs) You have been to the Isle of Wight, but today we're in a very posh London hotel. But when you actually came to the Isle of Wight to go to uh, the Margaret Cameron house, it was was a bit rushed, wasn't it, that day? (laughs) It was certainly a busy day, but it worked out very well, I think. I was was delighted with the experience and... uh, we, uh, I suppose, uh, the most unusual part of the whole trip was that uh, we were met by um, a longtime resident of, uh, of the Isle of Wight in a 1919 Bentley that had been in, in her family uh, since it was bought. <laughs> and it was still running very well. <laughs> First... Uh, car that old I've ever been in. <laughs> was it? I can remember the car turning into the drive and yes, then you indeed. sat in the open <laughs> open back car, wasn't it? Of course, of course. <laughs> it was wonderful. I want to go right back. Scottish ancestors going a long way back, really. Yes? Mm-hmm. Scottish yes, ancestors? Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Um, my grandfather was a clan Fraser, and which gives me a remote share of the Fraser blood, of which I'm very proud. And um, I suppose the most uh, famous Fraser was uh, after the Battle of Culloden, Simon the Fox, Simon Lord, Lord Lovett then. They called him Simon the Fox because he was so adept at escaping capture by the British, who, ha- having won the Battle of Culloden, felt uh, that they certainly ought to be able to lay a hand on this one, one wily Scott, but it took them more than a year to capture him. And, so of course, when they finally did, that solidified their determination to see, see him away. <laughs> and he was uh, condemned to death, of course, and uh, I suppose you'd um, that's those are two significant uh, events in the clan history of the whole Fraser clan. Uh, that uh, Simon Lord Lovett of the time, Simon the Fox, 
was the last man to be executed by beheading in England and the last nobleman to be beheaded. You know, we take our family history where we find it. Exactly. <laughs> you grew up in, in the Michigan pine woods, which must have been fantastic. It was a marvelous boyhood. Uh, very tiny community. I, I, not really certain how many families were there, but I doubt there were 20 scattered uh, more or less loosely throughout the great forest, or some of it was still uh, virgin forest. And I went to a one-room school with um, 13 pupils in eight grades, three of whom were my cousins and half of whom were girls, so of course you couldn't make up any teams because there weren't enough uh, enough students to do it, and in any case, we didn't have any equipment. <laughs> of course, we did have uh, uh, hunting and fishing and canoeing, uh, fishing uh, through the ice in the winter, which was great fun. As a small boy, I remember sitting in that dark shanty which had been pulled out onto the ice, and then you you have a, maybe a yard square hole in the center of the floor, and once you've parked your fish shanty where uh, it seems a likely place, you could pull it, the ice is very thick in Michigan in the winter, that uh, pull it out uh, with a truck and then leave the shanty there until spring and then you had to be careful to get it off the ice before the ice melted, but the ice would be, oh, close to a foot thick so there was no pr danger of it breaking onto you. And then they had a little wood stove to keep it warm, because Michigan in the winter is very cold. I bet. <laughs> really cold. And one time, uh, I remember it got down to 50 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. And we weren't allowed to go out in it, but that was the temperature. And I remember the, uh, the rule for figuring out if it was really too cold to stay out was you could spit, and if the spit froze before it hit the ground, you'd hear a little <laughs> click, and then the family rule was you were supposed to go back inside. <laughs> and uh, the fishing in the winter and in the summer, and canoeing and hunting, of course, was uh, part of my boyhood. And it was a marvelous place for a boy to, to experience his early years. You ran away once, but you didn't stay away very long, no, did you? No, <laughs> didn't go very far. And uh, got, I, I got down, I think, as far as the highway. And my father had said, well, you want me to drive you into the next town? So you, and I said, no, no, I'll make my own way. But um, when I went down, why, after I walked maybe... 200 yards along the road where I saw my father's car coming and I climbed back in. It was... Uh... <laughs> Chuck, I know you once met an old Indian who meant quite a lot to you. Yes. Um, I didn't see much of him. He was uh, not very talkative, but he was... I realized he was living in a, a cabin out in the woods on the other side of the lake. And... I was very hesitant of approaching him because he looked rather formidable, but uh, he finally grudgingly accepted my presence and even allowed me to chop firewood for him a few times. And uh, we were just beginning to establish 
what I thought was a, the beginnings of a relationship when I went back one day and he was gone. And I never saw him again. You also saw an aeroplane, which was a, a bit of a surprise for you, wasn't it? That's true. Um, <laughs> it was the first aeroplane I ever saw. I was out playing in the woods and across a field that had been cleared for cows to graze on. There was a plane coming low over the field, an old biplane, I have no idea what kind it was, probably a Curtis. And it landed, and a guy got out in boots and a leather jacket and helmet and goggles, and he said, uh, hey kid, you know where I can get some gas, maybe a sandwich? <laughs> and I was almost speechless with amazement that here was a man who was actually flying an airplane. And I pointed, it was a matter of a quarter of a mile down the road across the railroad tracks. There was a store where they sold gas, and he had his gas can with him. And also I knew that he could get a sandwich there. So uh, I explained all this to him, and he started off. He said, thanks, kid. He said, don't let anyone steal my plane. And so I stayed there. And then I thought, no, no, I have to, I have to get somebody to tell this to. So I ran back and tried to find my father, anybody. And then as I was running back, because I couldn't find anybody, uh, I saw the plane start up and take off and flew overhead. And that was the end of it. But that was my first airplane. <laughs> In your super book, which is a long read, Chuck, it's a long read, 570 pages, mm -hmm. I think. I love the piece when you said you, you went through a, a nerd period as a kid. Well, I was. <laughs> this was when I went. Uh, our family moved down to a suburb of Chicago, a very well-to-do suburb in which we were on the lower end of the economic scale. Uh, not starving by any means, but this was a very posh suburb. The great advantage of it was that uh, by the geographical location of where we were living, attended what was then considered as the finest public high school in the United States. And it still is. And it was just by geographical accident that I went there. It was a very significant part of, of my, the foundations of my life, really. But I was unequipped for any sort of a extracurricular career in a high school like that, where at that time none of the kids actually had cars, but uh, they, they came from an uh, economic status a bit above uh, our families. And still, the, the only... I had never played football um, or any team sport up in the woods of course but I tried out for the football team I was uh, I was really short for it uh, although suddenly when I was in the uh, junior year at high school I started to grow like a cornstalk and <laughs> became from the, one of the smallest kids in my class to one of the tallest but still pretty nerdy and, uh, and skinny and on top of which, I'd, um, I broke my nose in 
a, a futile attempt to play football. I wish very much I could locate the kid that broke that nose because I'd give him a thousand dollars. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a valuable nose. It's gotten me a lot of parts. But, uh, and in a sense, though the only th extracurricular activity I could really qualify for in the high school was the chess club and the rifle team, which makes for a rather meager um, activity. <laughs> and, um, but it was, it was a great high school to go to, not least because they had a very fine drama department. So that was the beginning of my, uh, my training as, a, as an actor. They actually had classes in theater. And then the local uh, community theater, which was a very active one. Uh, I worked, did th plays there. And then, uh, and this was very important, I didn't expect it would happen for a moment, but they occasionally awarded a scholarship to Northwestern University, and they awarded it to me, to my amazement. <laughs> or I couldn't have gone to Northwestern, and I would not have met my wife, mm -hmm. and I very, it's hard to imagine how I could have gotten any training as an actor. But all, they call that serendipity, which means the unexpected good consequences of an entirely random choice. <laughs> John Hanam is on the air now. Hanam, Hanam, doesn't matter. He's a lovely boy. Currently I'm in Piccadilly, lovely part of London, with world-famous film star Charlton Heston, looking back on his wonderful life. And uh, so there you were, and you, you met a young lady, didn't you? Well, but again, serendipity. The entirely unexpected good consequences of a random choice. I had signed on for a, one of the requisite freshman classes in the theatre department at Northwestern, class called uh, Fundamentals of Theatre Practice A40. And it gathered in a large lecture hall with a stage and so on. And I chose a seat at random the first day and found myself sitting behind an absolutely stunning girl who paid no attention to me. <laughs> I didn't care. I wouldn't have known what to say to her anyway. I just sat behind her and looked at her hair. For two days I looked at her hair and never took a note. <laughs> then I finally uh, mustered up the courage, thinking she wouldn't notice, of touching her hair gently. <laughs> now, she insists that I pulled it, but that is impossible. I wouldn't have dreamt of such an uh, outrageous behavior. But uh, be that as it may, in two or three or four or five days while we had it, arrived at conversational level of acquaintance. But I've, I've often thought, if I had sat on the other side of the lecture hall, I would not be sitting here talking to you now. You didn't have enough money to pay for the coffee either, did you? No, <laughs> oh, no. This was fairly later. Oh, was it? We had <laughs> appeared uh, on the stage in different plays, but uh, in the same bill of one acts. And Lydia came downstairs to my dressing room. It wasn't a dressing room. It was a corner of where everybody was putting on makeup. And she told me 
that she liked my performance, which befuddled me so much that my only response was to stick out my tongue at her, which wasn't really a great social move. <laughs> but uh, she uh, managed to avoid hitting me or anything, and when I had the temerity the, in a few moments to ask her if she would come and have some coffee with me, she th said yes, which stunned me <laughs> and disturbed me a few minutes later when I realized I didn't have any money. <laughs> and fortunately, again, by the grace of God, a friend of mine was walking along the street, coming in the opposite direction, and his name was Bill Sweeney, and his, it will be written in my golden book forever, because I asked him if he could loan me 50 cents, which he did. And then we went to the coffee shop and sat over, as, as long as 50 cents lasted, uh, for at least an hour or two hours. And that was the beginning of my life. Lydia, could you move in and welcome to John Hannah You actually appeared on my show when you came to the Margaret Cameron house a year or two ago, didn't you really? Yes, well, I was there last summer too. Yes, you doing were. A, a photography exhibition. That's right. And it's such a wonderful place. It's such a marvelous idea setting up that. So what was he like when you first met him? Were you sort of, did you fall in love instantly or not really? <laughs> No, I don't think Not so. Not bloody like <laughs> No. <laughs> no, I remember turning around and looking at him, and I, I saw the, the skinniest man I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> I think he had a reputation of being quite an actor because he was uh, the only student in the whole 2,000-man class who was, uh, uh, had actually made a film. <laughs> And uh, and I think today, the only film of Per Gint by... Uh, yeah, this was a play I had done as a, in my junior year in high school. Rather eccentric young amateur filmmaker whose parents were relatively well-to-do actually made films, silent films, of course. He, there was no sound equipment available to student filmmakers then. But he insisted I play Pierre Gint. He saw me doing something uh, uh, on the high school stage, and I did. And as Lydia just said, it remains the only film version of Ibsen's Pierre Gint in existence. It was a great beginning. I'm with one of my all-time screen idols, Charlton Heston, who millions have watched over the years in such wonderful epic movies. But I want to go right back to Dark City, which was your first sort of... My Pro first proper movie, was it? <laughs> well, it was my first Hollywood movie. Yes. I had made, uh, again, for the same director I'd worked with in high school after, after we all got back from the war in one piece. I did, and I had indeed made my Broadway debut in remote support of Catherine Cornell in Antony and Cleopatra, which I have since filmed myself. But Shakespeare's Antony. Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, <laughs> yes. I'm glad you came, Lydia. Yes, and... Uh, <laughs> I uh, then was approached by this same David Bradley uh, to do a film version of Julius Caesar and, of course, play Antony, which is the best part in that. And I did it, 
And uh, Lydia and I uh, were married by then, of course. This is after the war. Indeed, as I recall, she played a Roman soldier in the... (laughs) 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 And that was a valuable experience for me, I must say. I've I've done Julius Caesar since then, as both in television, the early days of live TV, and as a film for Rank. And I've, I've played Mark Antony and Antony and Cleopatra since then, too. But uh, so it's a, that's a significant play in my whole experience, in whole portfolio. I know your biggest movie, earliest movie, was The Greatest Show on Earth. Yeah, it was my second film and mm. indeed a very important stepping stone. Chuck, uh, there was a, a certain wave, wasn't there, that got yes, you the job? Well, I had <laughs> made my first movie. And for a great producer named Hal Wallace, it was not a marvelous film. It was an okay film, Dark City. And it did uh, moderately well at the box office. But um, having finished it, I um, thought it was time to go back home. Lydia was doing a play in New York at the time. So I thought, well, I've finished this movie. I'll go home and spend the time with her and then see what happens, do another play perhaps, or some more live television, whatever comes along. And I had been introduced to Cecil B. DeMille, who of course is one of the men who invented the motion picture industry, along with Sam Goldwyn and uh, Adolf Zucker, and Jesse Lasky too. And I think almost everyone that came on the lot of the new people to do a film were introduced to DeMille. It was just a, a very short ritual, but you got to meet the great man and exchange five minutes of conversation, and uh, then you had met him. <laughs> and uh, which was no longer that it happened, and it was not at the front of my mind. But I was on the lot, and I had a, a Packard convertible, and this could not have happened if I had not had the top down on the Packard convertible. <laughs> And uh, I'd said my goodbyes, and I was driving off the lot, and Mr. DeMille was standing on the front uh, steps, if you will, of his office building, talking to some of his staff. And as I drove by, I thought, well, I've met him. I suppose I should wave to him. So I just tipped a hand wave at him, and he uh, nodded and went on talking and I drove off and I heard later that he then turned to his um, secretary who did not really take down everything he said but she took down a great deal of what he said and he said uh, who was that and she flipped through her book notebook and said that's uh, Charlton Heston New York actor uh, Broadway He's made one picture for Hal Wallace called Dark City. You ran it a week ago. You didn't like it. <laughs> and he said, I like the way he looked just now, that wave. You better have him in to talk about the circus picture. So I then, from that, played the lead in The Greatest Show on Earth, which won the Academy Award. And as I've said many times since, if you can't make a career out of two DeMille pictures, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> Chuck, someone actually thought you were the circus manager, I think, didn't they? <laughs> well, this, this was uh, sometime later, of course, when the picture had been yeah. finished. 
And it was a great success, and Lydia was out with me, and we were um, considering other films to do. And I went in to see Mr. DeMille one day, just to chat, because I hadn't uh, worked with him for a while. And uh, he said, uh, Chuck, he said, uh, I got a piece of uh, correspondence that uh, you're not likely to see again. He said, it's quite unusual. And he read a letter from someone who had seen The Greatest Show on Earth, the circus picture. And it said how much they liked it, how good Jimmy Stewart had been as the clown, and how Mr. DeMille had captured the feeling of the circus, and almost the smell of sawdust, and Betty Hutton was good, and Dorothy L'Amour, and so on and so on. And he said, and you know, that manager um, did almost as well as the real actors. <laughs> and that's the best compliment you can possibly have. I'm Penelope Fielding. And whenever I can, I listen to John Hannah meets. <laughs> Ben-Hur was a fantastic success, really. And recently I discovered that um, when it was shown on USA television in 1971, 32,670,000 watched it on, on that yes, one night. The, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, the first time they'd showed it on television, of course, it's available in video cassettes and uh, it's shown in revivals every so often and it's uh, it's it's a very good film no question and it was very important for me lots of extras there were several hundred maybe a thousand maybe a thousand let's say two thousand in the uh, the the arena when the chariot race (laughs) the rest were in the pirate scenes maybe just hundreds but it was it's I would say the chariot race in Ben Hur is arguably the best action sequence ever filmed, and it took a lot of time to do it. It took uh, fully two months where they were shooting on that sequence every day. I wasn't there every day because I was working with the first unit with William Wyler uh, on the other parts of the story, but Yakima Kanat, who directed the sequence was uh, with those eight teams out uh, every day for two months. And it shows in the, uh, in the finished film. It's, it's probably the best action sequence ever made. I'd agree with that. You won um, about 11 Oscars, I think, didn't you, for that? Well, I only won the one. Yeah, the movie <laughs> the f- did. The film won 11, <laughs> yes. which is the, the most uh, that any. Now, of course, uh, Titanic won more than that, but uh, now... There are many awards that are doubled. There are two awards which really go to the same for the same work. There are two, for instance, there are two music awards. There are two costume awards. There are any number of the technical awards are doubled. So um, in terms of, uh, of the way they counted it in when we made uh, uh, the film, why... Uh, ben Hur is one more than any. You never get fed up with talking about that, do you really? Well, I never get, <laughs> I'll never get through being asked about it. <laughs> I wanted to mention the Ten Commandments when you played Moses because your son actually was also in the movie, I think, wasn't he? So he was. <laughs> My second film for DeMille was Ten Commandments, which was, uh, of course, the key part of the year. And... Mr. DeMille never showed a script to anyone that he was considering for a part. He would, he would talk to you about the film, 
not necessarily about the part he was considering you for. It made for a very difficult conversation because about all you could say was, well, that certainly sounds like it's going to make a wonderful movie. You couldn't say, well, you know, I think I can do that part. I'm very confident I could give you a good performance because he hadn't mentioned that. Uh, he was just talking about the film overall and he had sketches and models of various parts of the set and costume designs that were all very interesting. And the actors that he was considering would be called in in due course at some intervals and he would repeat this process. He had me in for two such meetings and both were about exactly the same. And uh, then at the end of 20 minutes or so of talking about it, he'd say, well, I may get back to you. And you'd say, well, it certainly sounds like it's going to be a great movie. And then finally he announced it. And uh, we shot for, what, about two and a half months in Egypt for the exteriors. And they had a marvelous set was built, uh, which, of course, as soon as we finished it, he t- had it torn down, which, to the horror of the Egyptian authorities, who were planning on making a tourist attraction, oh, yes. it, which he did not want to have happen. <laughs> but then we shot back in the studios for, um, I guess, about eight months before the shooting was finished. Mm. And it uh, had a wonderful cast. Uh, Yul Brynner was, I think, actually... Yule's performance as the pharaoh was the best performance in the film. I was, I was good in it, but I was a little green for that part. Well, I could do it better now. You had the nose, didn't you? Yeah, I had the nose. Yeah. Fraser Heston, he was a star, wasn't he? Well, why don't you tell the story about Fraser? The morning after Fraser was born, the first telegram I received was from Mr. DeMille, and it simply said, he is cast in the part. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he was delighted it was a boy. Yes, and also the reason that uh, DeMille felt he was so perfectly cast as he was, not only that he was a boy, of course, that we didn't know until he was born, but... uh, Yes, in those days, you could find out. (laughs) But uh, he was a boy, and also... Given the date of his birth in February, DeMille realized that in uh, April he would be three months old. And that's the reputed age of the infant Moses when he was cast adrift in the bulrushes. (laughs) And it was, he was very good, I must say. (laughs) Uh, Chuck noticed at one point that the the basket and the clothes were awfully wet and he thought well that's normal for a baby (laughs) and then he looked again and he realized that the basket itself had begun to sink and he grabbed Fraser lifted him up (laughs) and uh, they're very fussy about Children, uh, especially babies in films, you know, they only give you something like 45 seconds at a time in front of the screen. And it took a good afternoon to do that one little scene. Hi, this is Dennis LaCourier, the voice of Dr. Hook, and you're listening to John Hannah Meets on Isle of Wight Radio because you have such good taste. 
Currently, I'm in London's West End with uh, Charlton Heston, Piccadilly, actually. And what's the name of the hotel, Chuck? Well, we're very comfortable here. I've stayed here before. The Athenaeum, a well-known... Uh, great many show business people come here. I don't... Uh, well, I know why, because it's a good hotel. Chuck, I want to talk about Warlord. Did you like that movie? Very fond of that film. It uh, was one of the few projects where I... Uh, I bought the film rights. I had been offered it as a play, and it didn't seem to me to work as a play, and I didn't, uh, so I turned it down. But then I uh, bought an option on the film rights to it, and we made the movie. And it's, uh, I think, a very good movie. I'm very proud of it. The American Historical Society selected it as the most accurate historical film of the year. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Terrific. You once turned down a movie with Marilyn Monroe. Any regrets, or was it just w too much work? No, it, uh, w it would have been too little work. Um, she was towards the end of her career at the time. And uh, as is, I think, true of many very beautiful performers, they are fixated on the fear that they are only stars because they are beautiful. And that preoccupied Marilyn Monroe, to my understanding. I've talked to Laurence Olivier about that, and that was his opinion. And I also I knew that she just finished The Misfits for Clark Gable. And in effect, it cost him his life because he was a very very responsible actor. He showed up on time, he knew his words, and he didn't bump into anything in Spencer Tracy's immortal advice to actors. But he would walk on the set of The Misfits, on call, in wardrobe, and have a book and sit down and read while they waited for Miss Monroe who usually wouldn't appear for hours and hours and hours. And he had a clause in his contract, had had from the old days at Metro, that he had a 5 p.m. quitting time. When he finished at 5 o'clock, then he could go home. And so he would wait till it was 5 o'clock and then say, well, see you tomorrow, fellas and be gone. That story circulated throughout the film community, and I thought, no, I don't want any part of this. Did you come across any sort of huge egos, uncontrollable egos, when you were in Hollywood, really? All actors have egos. So do directors, so do um, writers, uh, so do actresses. But uh, I can't say I found an uncontrollable ego. I've worked for some people I was not wild about working with, but uh, by and large, I've had... Uh, few difficulties. Chuck, you didn't like to be cocooned as a sort of a, a, a Hollywood icon in a way, did you? Uh, define cocooned in this context. You liked to sort of get out and meet the people and, and, and circulate. You didn't like to be sort of kept away from everyone because you were, were famous in a way. Would that be right? Well, my public identity goes with me. You mean, do I seek out fans in public? I think you've always been accepted by fans, and you like meeting fans, I think, don't you, in a way? Well, it's part of my job. I don't seek them out. They're there, outside the hotel, and I expect that. But it, uh, it's not a part of my daily agenda, by any means. 
being a Hollywood movie star, was it sort of sometimes, obviously, glamour, wonderful films, but was it tough at times to, to sort of to live with all that sort of pressure? Well, you have to get used to it. It's, uh, you know, it's World War II was a lot tougher, I'll tell you that. I'm sure. <laughs> but I haven't found uh, the pressures of being a public uh, face uh, overwhelmingly difficult. I know there are actors and more often actresses that find it an enormous burden. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't find it so. Uh, to return to your previous question, I don't certainly don't seek out fans to talk to, but if someone approaches me, you have to be polite. My grandfather taught me that. El Cid was a, a great part of your life, another mega movie with Sophia Loren, who was very, very big at that time, wasn't she? Sophia is still big. Yes. Still, I saw her just a few months ago. She still looks exactly the same as uh, as she did when we made the seed, and she's a and she's a good actress. At the time I worked with her, her English was something she had been working on with great success, but it it was a something she had to devote a lot of attention to, and I respected her for that. I remember uh, in El Cid, she of course wasn't in all the scenes, and so they'd made a schedule, I think we had her for three months, something like that. So let's say three months. And then she, we, uh, they'd contracted to finish her by that time. So of course they concentrated on those scenes. And the last scene in which she worked was the Seed's death scene, which is a very good scene. And we finished all her close-ups on it. And as is perfectly routine, the plan, since she, that was the end of the day's work and she was leaving the next morning, was I would do my close-ups without her, uh, which they call that acting. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Sophia said, no, no, Chuck, I will come by on the, my way to the airport and do off-camera for you, do the scenes off-camera. I said, Sophia, it, believe me, it, it's not a problem. Please don't do that. You've been working very hard. It's been marvelous. Uh, you're going to be wonderful in the film, and it's time to go home. And she said, she insisted. She said, no, no, I will be here tomorrow morning. And unhappily enough, she went back to the apartment she was staying in and fell down the stairs and broke her arm. So I had to do the off-camera <laughs> by myself. Lydia, can I just ask you, when your husband was acting with some of these sort of um, dream women, if you like, Sophia Loren and, and all the big lady stars, you were never jealous, were you? <laughs> <laughs> were you? Not really, because it's terribly important that they should be warm and lively scenes. And, and I think they were. <laughs> I know quite often you went um, to the sets, didn't you, to oh, the yes. locations, and you yes. enjoyed all I that, really. I love this being on the set. Uh, we have lots of friends who would come on the set and expect, you know, a lot of dynamic action, and uh, very often they will get something like somebody stepping out of a telephone booth <laughs> or <laughs> some such thing, but... Uh, well, it is nice uh, on locations. Uh, they usually give you a house big enough to have guests. And uh, f our friends have often come, or my mother uh, was, uh, came several times. I remember the first time my mother visited a set. I wasn't making a movie. There, this was back in Hollywood. And 
Uh, I was preparing a film, but there was we weren't shooting. But they were filming The King and I with Yule Brenner. And uh, so I said to my mother, look, we can go on the set and we can watch them uh, shoot and then we'll have lunch and there we are. And she thought that was fine. And as I was driving on the lot, I said, no, you know, honey, filmmaking can be quite boring and time-consuming. It takes a long time to light the shot. Maybe it could take up to an hour. And then it may be just someone walking downstairs or something. So don't, don't expect that it's going to be necessarily marvelous, but we will see some shooting. And we got to the soundstage just as the bell went off. They always have a red bell, which means you can't come on the stage then. And I just slipped inside, and we stood in the darkness, and the lights came on, and they were doing the master setup for Shall We Dance. And uh, they finished it, and the director said, Cut, that's print, break for lunch. <laughs> And my mother said, well, Chanton, I thought that was quite interesting. I said, yeah, that was a pretty good shot to watch, honey. <laughs> Lydia, I think you actually went to the Paramount Studios as a youngster, didn't you? Did you have a look around the Paramount Studios? Yes, I did. How did you know that? Well, I have to find out these things, Lydia. <laughs> yes, we did. You didn't uh, get on. Uh, that was through the gate, I think wasn't I was 16 at the time. and No, we didn't get through the gate, but we were able to watch people coming and going and it was very exciting. I never dreamed I'd ever be working there, which I did later on. You made some movies yourself, didn't you? Yes. Very good yes. she is, too. It's great. He's got a swell personality. He meets and greets the stars with such amenity. Good enough to make you coming out of the street. John Hannamie. That's right. My current guests are Charlton and Lydia Heston, two uh, fantastic people. Charlton, of course, Hollywood movie star, and Lydia, world-famous photographer. Chuck, what does first dollar gross mean to, to us English people? Is that sort of to do well, with the... Well, it was a very important uh, milestone for me. Rather than be paid X dollars to do the movie, you are paid in terms of a percentage of the gross and first dollar gross means sometimes they, they try to say, well, um, a percentage of the, of the movie after it is broken even, but first dollar gross means from the first dollar and is much the best way to get paid. <laughs> In your book, I felt very sorry for you with Major Dundee because I think you, you sort of offered to waive your fee and, and uh, they sort of well, accepted, didn't they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I shouldn't have brought that up really, should I? No, no, it's uh, it, uh, Major Dundee, I think, is, is a good film. And Sam Peckinpah was a very good director, complicated man, and, but still a fine director. But we were running both over budget and over time, over the schedule, not horrendously, but uh, I don't know, maybe a week over scheduled and several hundred thousand dollars over budget. And this disturbed me um, because I, while I didn't feel that I was responsible for these delays, that uh, was taking more time than we had said it would take. And so I was still pretty green kid at that point. <laughs> well, not a kid, but pretty green. <laughs> And I said, uh, 
look, they wanted to fire Sam, and I didn't want that. And I said, no, no, that's ridiculous. Don't do that. And I said, look, I know that it's been running over budget, and it's over time, and uh, I will pick up the slack in that. And they said, oh, no, no, Chuck, uh, don't be silly. That's, that's ridiculous. Uh, we're, we're fine, and it's going to be a good film, and we like what we see. No, we wouldn't dream of that. So feeling rather pleased with myself, I called my agent, and I explained this to him. He said, you stupid idiots. <laughs> he said, they're going to take the money. I said, no, 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 they won't. They said they thanked me, but and of course they took the money. <laughs> and I remember this created a little furor in the film community at the time. And a couple of uh, journalists said to me, they said, now do you feel that uh, uh, your action and offering to pick up the slack and the overrun will create any precedent uh, in among other performers. I said, it doesn't create any precedent for me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> While she was shooting that movie, I think once in the scene you were mistaken for a real gang in Mexico, was that right? We were shooting in a very remote country and we finished whatever it was, the scene we were doing at one place and the next uh, location was a Oh, hardly a village, really, not more than a village, just oh, maybe half a dozen structures. And that's where we were going to do the next scene. And Sam said to me, well, look, why don't you mount up the rest of the troop and ride down there and we'll wrap the company and follow you. So we did. And this is a really remote part of, uh, of Mexico, Chilipancingo. And they were certainly not used to film companies. They'd never seen a film company. But over the centuries, they had seen, seen lots of times uh, bands of armed men on horseback approaching their village. And as we trotted down the hill towards them, you could see shutters being closed and children being snatched off the street. And I thought, this is what they've been through for centuries. And here they, they're thinking, oh, Lord, here they come again. But uh, that's all there is to the story. But it was a clear example that the, to the villagers, they thought they were about to be raided again. On a more serious note, I know you sort of backed Martin Luther King, didn't you? I think, Lydia, actually, you, you marched behind Martin Luther King, I think, well, didn't you? Well, I, I, Martin Luther King didn't really need much backing, <laughs> but I went with him and did some picketing for civil rights long before it got popular in Hollywood. Indeed, it was wildly unpopular. Not among actors, but uh, even there, there weren't a lot of guys that were willing to go out, as I did. And I suppose partly because I was president of the Screen Actors Guild at the time, why I was able to get a couple of, there were more than a couple, Henry, Harry Belafonte, uh, Burt Lancaster, a, a number, there were, there were a good number, Marlon Brando, uh, and of course many others who joined Dr. King's march in 61. 63. 63, I beg your pardon, you're quite right. And it was a very exciting time. 
again, I suppose because I was president of the Screen Actors Guild, why they sort of appointed me the honcho of the actors that were going. A couple of directors, a couple of writers went, but uh, mostly actors, and joined the march. Of course, there were several, a couple of hundred thousand uh, in Washington. And it was a, a, one of the most exciting times of my life, truly. And Lydia came, and... Uh, yes, what happened to me was rather interesting, I think. The FBI had called me the evening before the march, and they said, whatever you do, you must not go out with the march, because Chuck would be with these other people, and I'd be defenseless. So I decided not to go, and then I heard them singing on the street below the hotel, you know, and I couldn't resist it. So I went out and I found a very nice black woman who was willing to march with me. So uh, I had my trusty Leica and I took all kinds of pictures. It was a very exciting day, as Chuck is saying. I remember that uh, afterwards she said, because, of course, I, we were marching up in front with uh, Dr. King behind him, obviously. And Lydia was way back in the crowd. And she said, I bet I had a better time than you big dogs up front. <laughs> and she, I think she did, too. Also, a bit later on, you did a TV memorial to the late uh, John F. Kennedy, didn't you? Yes, uh, as along with a number of other people uh, that was on CBS, as I recall. And I read uh, some poetry. And it was uh, it was a worthwhile experience. And of course, another from your profession went on to become president of the states. And I know you were very unhappy sometimes, Chuck, when people criticised um, Ronald Reagan as just being a former actor, weren't you? Really, because he made, he made a good president, didn't he? No, he was a fine president. I think it was uh, when he when he was running for governor that uh, I've forgotten who was the had been his uh, rival for. The, his Democratic opponent in that race for governor. And he said, well, you know, it was, uh, was an actor that killed Lincoln. That was not a successful choice for <laughs> <of> political <laughs> campaigning. <laughs> and I think Reagan made not only a fine governor for two terms, but a great president for two terms. 55 Days at Peking. Is there any sort of brief memories of that film, one of your favorites? Yes, uh, acting with David Niven uh, was uh, a marvelous experience, a wonderful man, good actor. Ava Gardner was in that. It's a good movie. I like it very much. OK, let's meet the families. Oh, sorry, wrong show. I'm Les Dennis, but you're listening to John Hannah Meets. Currently I'm in London with Charlton Heston and Lydia Heston. Lydia, could you just move in? Wonderful photographer. I've seen your wonderful exhibition you had on the Isle of Wight last Thank year. Thank you. And I know you took so many lovely photographs on locations. Yes, yes. It's an opportunity I think most photographers would envy. I mean, a chance to be in a foreign location long enough to really absorb the cultural mm -hmm. atmosphere and... Uh, understand something about the people. Most of my work is people pictures. And she's a very good photographer, I think. And I think, as, as she just said, that uh, the chance she's had to use her camera in exotic parts of the world and is has been a definite plus in, in the kind of work she's able to do. You've just had a very successful exhibition back home in the States, I think, haven't oh, you? Oh, yes. Uh, we were in um, Orange County, which is quite a wealthy part of 
California, and I'm happy to say they are buying photographs. Yes. <laughs> Chuck, we're in London at the moment, and there's a lovely story of when you came once before, and in the sort of local paper, London paper headlines, it said Ben-Hur's chariot stolen. You had a car stolen, I think, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I bought a, a Jaguar in those days. Uh, if you drove a new car bought in this country a certain number of miles, I don't know, two, a couple of hundred miles, then when you imported it into the state uh, as being, in effect, a used car, uh, the, uh, the import uh, tax was not as great. So, and I loved the car anyway and was able to navigate it as far as Pinewood Studios. But I came home uh, one night and turned the car in and uh, went, uh, my, when you're making a movie, you don't go out night clubbing very often. You're, the calls are too early. So we had dinner and went to bed. The next morning I phoned down to the uh, garage and I said, this is Chuck Heston, would you bring my car around? He said, you never brought it back last night, sir. I said, I brought it back the end of the day, and uh, where is it? And of course, nobody knew. And what had happened, as they later discovered, was a couple of uh, of thieves, very clever, because uh, what we found out when we questioned the hotel people, they said that a man in uh, immaculate evening dress had walked into the lobby of the hotel and said, um, would you bring uh, Mr. Heston's car up, please? And they did, of course. And then he walked out with a case and said, put this in the boot, will you? And got in and drove it off. And uh, what they wanted was uh, they were going to rob one of the gambling joints nearby, and they wanted a car that could outrun the police cars on the road down to Brighton, where they drove it, and uh, left it under under a tree, and someone found it. And uh, they there'd been uh, stories in the paper: Ben Hur's chariot stolen. And uh, so the guy was a young architectural student. He called him up, and there was the car, not a scratch on it. I've seen so many of your films, but I've never seen Call of the Wild, and you're not Just too sad well. about that. <laughs> Just as well. <laughs> so much for Call of the Wild. <laughs> Did you like the things like Earthquake? Was those sort of big disaster movies, was that you, really? Well, the disasters films seem to go in cycles. I think there was one in the 30s that do disaster films, and then there was another one in the, what, 70s, I guess it was. And for a while, they were all the thing. And then uh, at one point, I did a couple. Burt Lancaster did them. Uh, Paul Newman did Everybody did them. Jack Lemmon. And the, the situation is always the same. It's some natural disaster, flood, fire, whatever. And the story depends on a disparate group of people, none of whom know each other. Uh, and their reaction to whatever disaster they're dealing with. It's, it's a perfectly valid uh, formula for a film, and every so often they make them. Coming toward the end of an interview with Charlton and Lydia Heston, who are in England at the moment, in London, because their play, Love Letters, is at the Haymarket, going well too, isn't it? Indeed, yes. We're delighted to be back in London, which, after all, is the capital of the English-speaking theatre. 
and where I've played on stage uh, before and of course made a number of films here and uh, British audiences are are marvelous they really are and I'm glad to be back and when it's finished in London you're going uh, to Malvern, Malvern I think. Malvern, yes mm -hmm. for a week there and Which then we'll go back home and then we have to go to Spain I'm doing a film there you still enjoy making movies, Chuck, do you? Well, I'm determined to keep doing it till I get it absolutely right. <laughs> have you got an all... I know everyone asks you this. Have you got an all-time favourite? I know Will Penny was quite a, a popular film of with you. Of my own film? Mm. Will Penny's a very good film, as you mentioned Big Country is. It's uh, You like your films, uh, or they are liked for different reasons, uh, because they are wildly celebrated and honored with awards that's one kind of film um, because they pay you uh, or earn obscene sums of money um, or because they are uh, in my case uh, either Shakespearean films or films about historical figures and so that's four different categories to divide up and uh, I'm uh, happy to say I'm able to skip from one to another. You've come a long way from a Michigan nerd, if you like. <laughs> indeed, indeed. You could say that. <laughs> Couldn't have done it without her. It was a pleasure to be here. Yes. And uh, good luck with your photography in the future. Thank you. And good luck with love letters, because you, you love working with the old man, don't yes, you really? I really do. <laughs> Chuck, thank you so much for taking a lot of time with me today. No, I really no, no. do appreciate that. I'm uh, glad to have borrowed your audience. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish you lots and lots of luck in the future and good health to you both. Thank you. Well, that was super smashing great, wasn't it? Jim Bowen here, just reminding you, you've been listening to John Hannum. Today you've been listening to a Hannum archive from 1999 when I interviewed Charlton Heston and his wife, Lydia. Sadly, Charlton died in 2008 and Lydia died in 2018. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye for now.